Herzlich willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hallo. Today I have a student here uh, again from the NTech study course and I have the pleasure of seeing his master thesis who um, and the thesis is concerned with um, possibilities um, for the electric vehicles uh, in the future in collaboration with the grid. And um, of course Uh, what's kind of obvious, I think, to everybody, thinking about how our mobility will develop maybe in direction of having much more cars which don't use fuel as we know it, but uh, who work with um, electric motors. It's clear that we will need a lot of um, electrical energy for that, and it has to come from somewhere. Um, and um, you try to um, have an idea or propose an idea how the situation in Germany and in Sweden could be in the year 2030. Yes. So maybe um, as a start of the conversation as scientists, we should start with basic things to agree on. Uh, so the important things for um, all the energy is the grid as it exists now in Germany, for example, and in Sweden, for your other example. So what are uh, the components which are um, related um, to your model in the so-called grid? Well, uh, in my model, there are four major components. <laughs> uh, the first one is to try and mimic the market. So you have the generation uh, prognosis, which is done on the basis of how a TSO would do it uh, on the market. And then the other one is to run dispatch, dispatch model as it is to come up with the exact power plant running schedule. Those two were my major parts uh, that was done uh, as a preparation for the actual uh, thesis. The actual thesis uh, tried to model EV loads based on traffic behavior. So that was uh, the most important load that I considered in my thesis because while it is obvious that it's going to increase electrical energy consumption, uh, there is an importance in trying to understand how streaky these loads are because uh, there's already a problem with evening spikes going higher uh, due to the electric vehicles uh, after the commute hours. And I wanted to model this as close as possible and that was my third part. And the last part was to try and act as a fleet aggregator, although I do not uh, talk about it as much in the thesis, it's to mimic how a fleet aggregator would try and balance the grid uh, in partnership with a transmission operator. So these were the four important tools on the grid that I tried to mimic. Mm. <clears throat> so at the moment, um, the situation in Germany is traditionally that we have like a very centralized um, system. So there's a lot of connections between the plants which produce electric energy and transport it through the whole country and also over the boundaries of the country throughout all of Europe. And, um, of course, this gives a certain security, um, how it is um, worked on, and, you know, uh, the power plants, they have to agree to certain 
um, conditions which uh, the government puts on them just to be sure that there's always enough energy and if a thunderstorm destroys something it's not really so bad because it can be repaired in a short amount of time and also if you have like really important things like a hospital they of course have the possibility to have a local um, replacement if they lose their power and then it's kind of guaranteed that it will um, be repaired in a very short amount of time yes, and with all the cars coming on top of what we are using just now uh, then of course you have to see uh, how you can still guarantee um, this um, safety kind of yeah uh, there, there was study focus and try to see if that can act as a local distribution generator. Mm. And, well, it, that is, it looked good, but it was not, it did not look like it's going to suffice because, again, it, it is, the, the behavior of people cannot be simulated. Predicted, yes. yes. And so it's always a stochastic prediction. And no matter how many times you do it, you cannot predict what's going to happen. Yeah. So. Yes, of course you could say if um, the amount of electric cars um, is high enough, then the stochastic model uh, gets better and better in predicting at least kind of on the, mean on the macro values. level. Yeah. Yes, but then of course you could nevertheless have like um, spikes uh, when you would have to expect, like um, everybody is plugging in their car in the evening when they are coming home from work, like you already told at the very beginning. Um, then uh, you have to do something about that. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, in order to keep all these things intact, like the, the most important control that the TSO uses is the frequency control to, uh, and it ah, monitors. Okay, yes, that's also kind of a thing, yes. <laughs> we didn't really touch on that at all because I was kind of thinking about just amounts of energy, but you also have to keep track of the frequency, frequency yes. The network, yeah. yeah. And it it, it is in a manner just to keep track of the energy mm. going into and out of the system. And uh, depending on how the frequency behaves uh, for entire Europe, it is at 50 hertz. And when you have excess energy, it spikes up. But the uh, reliability margin of this is quite small. You have a 50 millihertz band b uh, uh, below and above the 50 hertz value. And that is basically around 0.1 percentage. And you have to keep the grid within this. And it's quite difficult uh, and there are three levels of controls in this uh, in this grid to keep that thing in play and now with the evs coming on board th there are a lot of low level outages mm. uh, on the on the lower grid level where the transformers just burn or the circuit is switched off straight away and that is kind of a problem for the small distribution suppliers uh, I'm not sure who it is in Karlsruhe, but I think ANBW. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so for these people, it's more important to use a, a slow integration of electric vehicles on the grid, whereas the government and uh, all the proponents of green energy want to have the electric vehicle as quickly as possible. So uh, right now we, we are having this... Uh, right now the big central utilities seem to be losing because EVs are just rap rapidly expanding, but at some point, there will be a discussion regarding how to secure the grid in terms of EV. And I think trying to give give up control of EVs by the owners, which is kind of a very difficult thing to ask, mm. is, is a very integral step in trying to incorporate 
electric vehicles and to keep our grid stable in the, because yeah a blackout yeah. is not an option so you use ev as abbreviation for electric yeah. vehicle sorry yeah yeah which is much easier than i'm trying to pronounce vehicle in a way that it sounds english and not german <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but this is kind of a, a general question, which you, of course, also have with smart homes, yes? If you produce energy uh, on the roof of your uh, house and you uh, have a contract with, with really um, being an energy provider, so if you don't use the energy all for yourself, then um, in the end you will, to have, will have to give up um, to control this yourself completely. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, like for, for example, Aeon has Aeon. I'm, I get. I hope I pronounced that right. They In German, have, it's Aeon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So Aeon has started a new product, which is called the Solar Cloud, mm. which is where they actively take control of the domestic solar panels, so that they can predict and control the grid. And that is how I think any distributed domestic storage or generation unit will tend towards. Yes, and then of course we have to. Of course, that's not kind of an engineering decision, but you have to somehow decide what is acceptable as a person who has the roof on which the um, thing is working and who wants to also use energy from that um, in a cheap way, really to give over control to some big entity where you kind of don't really know if they have your best interest at heart at all the moments. So in principle, I would say yes, because they also have to obey certain really restrict laws. But, um, you know, in, in kind of things which you would decide differently, you don't have any influence anymore. And um, as you said just now, with the electric vehicles, the EVs, uh, the situation would develop in this direction as well yeah. in order to have kind of a smart um, control and using um, the electric energy in a way that it's really the most efficient one, because that's that's um, really necessary in order to reduce our CO two, yeah, or footprint. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, like this development of smart home is a very big threat to the central authorities as such, because, like, I, I'm not I'm not an expert on smart homes, but uh, from my courses and some of the studies that I had to do for them, it, it seemed very difficult to predict. Like human behavior is difficult to predict, but if a machine is trying to do it on signals, it becomes even more difficult to scale the values. And these tend to cause much more spikes and drops on the grid than a normal user would. And so, well, they they are trying and coming up with solutions for this, but the present uh, grid will not be able to handle. Mm. Even with the present controls, we'll not be able to handle that. Yeah, but this sounds more like we need uh, cleverer ideas how to have regulation circles um, implemented in working together with the sensors. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, like all these require a clever solution and that looks like to be the decentralized grid. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, the connection between these decentralized grid is something that no one is ready to pay for. <laughs> and that, that's where you have the social yeah. welfare that needs to kick in at some point. Uh, mm. right, right now we have the EEG, which tries to pay for all the solar panels that's on the roof. And at some point we'll have to take this away and redirect, redirect it to the grid and 
try and because at uh, right now the costs of all these decentralized uh, power generation units have gone down and the feed-in tariffs that have been given to them are still quite high. Mm. So they are actually making money. And this is also something that the utilities use to generate profits. So this EEG tax right now might have to be redirected to the grid to ensure that we have a central grid that helps keep the security of supply intact. Mm. Yes. Yeah, this is kind of a completely new thing where we have to rethink um, how to connect everything and how to organize this. Yes, and I think somehow um, we have as examples also the roads which are built for cars where they can drive on. And um, of course, it's clear that um, the all our taxes go into some big pot and from this pot uh, everything is spilled. And uh, concerning energy, I would say this is at least as important as having roads. Uh, so somehow um, that this is kind of a common uh, thing. But nevertheless, one has to somehow decide also inside Europe how to organize that and what are the priorities. Yeah. Well, in, inside Europe, the priority uh, to come up with a solution looks even more difficult because right now there are some countries which are not pushing for renewables as much and they are much more stable in their grid and there are there are like in my present uh, study right now i'm looking at germany and poland and austria and their interactions on the grid and it's it's really interesting because while germany is trying to push for green it causes a lot of problems for poland <laughs> yeah. uh, because we have a lot of wind in the north and that pushes into uh, poland while coming to the southern germany region and These are the, this on a macro scale. This is what a decentralized grid would look like, where the countries will be replaced by cities or even smaller communities, and the European, uh, the NSOE at least, has a difficult time trying to keep all of these demands in play. And the European Commission also has to do a lot of arbitration between these countries to try and ensure that they work. So, this is a good scenario to look at and to learn from if you want to go for a decentralized grid and to understand how we can control and regulate these grids in the future. Mm. Yeah, of course, there's also this benefit that um, nowadays, if you have like big power plants, you always have to transport the electric energy very far. Uh, if you have uh, the possibility to produce energy locally, so at least kind of to have like two thirds or something comes always from some power Uh, some panels and from from windcraft, and you only have to um, transport like one third of the um, mm, yeah. uh, electric energy. Then you also don't lose so much energy while transporting it. And so this is also a possibility to um, gain, also to have less energy to produce in the future. Yes, but then it comes with another set of problems. Uh, yeah, of course, there's always because, <laughs> because grid the grid operators they work on the amount of energy that is flowing through their grid, mm. and if that reduces, their business model falls apart, and yeah. then they have no need to run a grid. So they have to be compensated in in the manner that the distributed generation units are being compensated right now. Mm. So we need to have a. Yeah. tax specialized it's, it's tax it's really like almost a disruption so at the moment it's not really like you know um, an aggressive revolution but it's like a silent revolution yes. um, sneaking up on, on the big producers and uh, of course there are a lot of things to debate I see that 
Also because somehow, I, I think even like 15 years ago, um, um, there were people discussing that we can do a lot with green energy, but they weren't believed by the by the players. And now they proved it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> and now um, they are kind of overrun uh, to really rethink a lot of things which are connected to that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's electricity has become such an important part of our lives that we do not really look at the, how secure it is. Mm. And like we flip we a switch and we it, assume yeah. it is going to always yeah. be there. And that's that's where I agree that it's it's very silent because we haven't really realized how fragile our electric grids are becoming. Mm. Whereas the utilities, they are going crazier on this issue because they, they are not able to handle it. And what is the outcome of this battle of forces? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, so what were the numbers which would you, um, what you kind of assumed um, the situation in 2030 would be like? So like percentages of cars? Uh, so uh, all of my assumptions were based on uh, targets. So uh, both Germany and... Uh, okay, they are all targets, yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, so I kind of forget about it, yeah. But with, in the European Union, you have like targets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, both Germany and Sweden are part of the 30 at 30 campaign. So this is basically to have 30 percent of the uh, vehicles being sold mm -hmm. uh, to be electric vehicles by 2030. And this, along with at least Germany, has its own report commission on electric vehicles, which aims to have six million electric vehicles mm -hmm. by 2030. So that is around 15% of the entire car stock. And it's it's a very small value. Where you, It looks like a very small value. But if you transform 6 million vehicles into the dead charging capacity, it crosses, it comes to almost 75% of the, our actual peak loads. Mm -hmm. So that is a lot of power. And well, while not all of these cars are uh, powering at the same time, It's still even just a fifteen percent penetration has, and in that a ten percent uh, concentration of load would cause a huge uh, change. And none of the power plants that we have have the ramping capacities to deal with these. So, even with a small penetration, you there is a big uh, problem that is being foreseen on the grid. For Sweden, the problem is even bigger because. Electric vehicles are more popular in Sweden compared to Germany, and the grid is smaller. So they have a they, Sweden does not have a target, but most of their studies, as well as the EV thirty at thirty, looking at the present uh, market conditions, and if they assume to reach thirty percent by twenty thirty, they would reach anywhere between one to one point five million uh, electric vehicles, which is less than Germany, but in terms of percentages, it's around twenty. So that is also a big problem for them and and since they have their base load as nuclear and hydro their ramping is better but it's saturated because there are no nuclears coming on in the foreseeable future and they have already maxed out with their hydro potential so this increase is again going to be a problem for them so yeah so in terms of numbers it is 1.5 million for sweden and 6 million for germany mm. in 2030 number of vehicles yeah of course um one topic which is also related to renewable energies is that um 
from their very nature. That's kind of funny because, of course, they are natural, but uh, they also have a nature. Uh, they are not um, available like all the times at the same um, amount. So, like um, if you um, try to harvest sun energy, of course, you can only do it uh, during this, the day, and the day is longer in summer and shorter in winter. And uh, with wind, it just blows when it blows. Uh, so it's even not really, you can't really say it's um, you have it in summer and not so much in winter because, you know, it kind of varies over the year with a certain uh, mean values, but um, the variation around this is, is really huge. And then you have to take whatever you get or you could even leave it and not take it uh, if you decide uh, it's enough. But then uh, in order to have safety in your grid, Uh, you need um, much more possibilities to store the energy, yes. at least for a short amount of time. During, maybe, if you kind of think about um, be having security for one day or something, um, then uh, what are the ideas for this um, storing of energy? Well, right now there is only one uh, large-scale idea that has been tested, which was in Australia. They had a hundred megawatt hour battery farm uh, and that is it is placed next to a wind farm and mm. essentially they both try to regulate their flows in order to come up with a more smoother curve of generation and that's the only big one that we've uh, discussed then there is the pumped hydro which is not as promising because we've, we're already using it and so yeah. the potential for it is quite low and uh, the most uh the most smartest solution and the one that people clamor for the most is the smart grid solution here. Because uh, if you link your wind, your solar and your homes in order to keep uh, them in sync, that seems like the most optimal usage. And this, of course, again goes with a distributed storage system where you have actual batteries like the power pack from Tesla. And so forth. So th these are some of the solutions. But on a large scale, with the phasing out of nuclear and the discussion around coal, there is no large scale solution that is being discussed as such. There is one alternative, w which sounds counterintuitive, but is it is the power to X uh, solution, which in which case you have all these excess energy on the grid being used to make. Uh, gas or biofuels for the gas network in uh, in Germany mm -hmm. and then to utilize it when the uh, generation falls so this is something that is also a big project which is, and which I think IT also does this uh, I forgot the name of the institute uh, but that that is one of the large scale solutions that is being discussed uh, uh, alongside uh, huge battery packs and Apart from that, on a TSO level, I'm not aware of any such. The TSOs are more concerned about keeping the status quo than looking at any promising solutions as such for now. Mm. Yeah, of course, I think very often, um, so at least at the moment, it's more like that you try to organize that locally so that you use the energy you produce on your roof, maybe to wash in the night and to heat during, you know, Um, or produce hot water or something like that when you have the energy and then you, you just have enough hot water that it's enough for the whole day. yeah. Or even, you know, to have like a little bit of um, 
to come through the colder days or something like that. Uh, and then that you try to make this locally, also using your own brain to what how do you have, for, what ideas do you have to kind of smoothen out um, the demand. usage, yeah, the usage of the energy. But nevertheless, uh, as you told, we will have to use also kind of standard batteries for that. And in your thesis, you proposed to use the batteries of the EVs um, in, a, in, a, in a huge way. Yeah, uh, because, well, the batteries right now, they're, they're not coming down in terms of costs for large-scale uh, this thing. And Yeah, they are quite expensive, yeah. Uh, and even for a smart grid, uh, it's unlikely that communities decide to invest around, for a community of, let's say, a thousand or so, they would require 500,000 euros worth of battery. And I'm not sure how many people are going to be happy to take part in uh, ownership of a battery which they cannot control, mm. essentially. So in this manner, uh, electric vehicles, which is something that people right now are pop trending towards, is, is the easiest way to gather batteries in car, uh, homes. But again, the, while the idea... And from a technical perspective, the idea sounds quite good, although there are some constraints since this is, this is dependent on the grid for the gen energy, so it cannot be a unlimited uh, power generation source like others. But the control, giving up the control of these EVs remains a, it's a more serious challenge than anything technical we have. But again, I, I like the idea when it was first proposed and it was it was part of my course, uh, e-energy course uh, last year here, and I, I, I just decided to take it up because I was interested in seeing which which of the two would be a bigger challenge, and the giving up ownership is proving to be the bigger one. Yeah, also uh, if you see how, what is the emotional um, relation Germans have with their car, yes, <laughs> then it's really hard to ask them uh, to give up the control of the battery. Yes. And I, th I think, I, I hope I do not sound wrong, but like Germans also like privacy and they, they do not like automation mm. and the, the, their fear of uh, decentralization is also quite high compared to some other places I've been. So all these just compound the whole problem, <laughs> the way I see it. Yeah, but I would say it's kind of a fascinating idea to see that if there are more EVs available, of course, these are all driving batteries and we are looking for new batteries in order to store energy, why not use them? But yes, it, it was. It, it's a good idea. And I, I was, I, when I was working on it, I, I did not give much thought to it because while it is common sense that if you're going to use bat uh, electric vehicle batteries to regulate the grid, then the battery activity will increase. But I also want, I did not think it would be that high. So when I looked at my results, you would increase the battery activity by around seven times. And that degrades your battery quite a bit. And it reduces the lifetime of EVs. And that is something that car manufacturers would not like. So there's going to be a probable pressure from the manufacturers. And especially in Germany where, I don't know, 14%? No. some A very high percentage of the GDP comes from car manufacturers. And if their performance falls, they would not be happy with it. <laughs> so that's another pressure that the, the normal decentralized grid would face 
as well going forward. Yeah, yeah but this is um, kind of only driven to a certain extreme, the problem which you always have with batteries, that while loading them, um, you always lose a little bit of their lifetime. And if you load them very often, which um, you have to, if the um, availability of um, renewable energies is there, then uh, this is kind of a problem which is um, central uh, to the whole conversation. And um, with the cars, this just you know goes on top of uh, having the problem that you have to load energy into your car in order to drive. And then um, there is just a certain lifetime of this battery. Yeah, yeah. We improved that a little bit. Um, so, you know, I I remember this from the early laptops mm. that you had like a very. You had to be very um, so when to load and how to load. You had to be very careful in order to at least have the lifetime the promised. Mm. But nevertheless, after like a year or two, you always had to replace yeah. because um, there was kind of you know like five minutes away from. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was From always going out of charge. Yeah, yeah. Now it's much better already, but of course it's still kind of not really comparable to if you have really the socket available and um, energy all the time. The, the, uh, the, the reason why laptops would differ from electric vehicles is because our charging and discharging of laptops is slow. It's and that's slow, good yeah. for a battery. Yeah. <laughs> you have a low charge and discharge. Whereas with electric vehicles, we want to charge them as quickly as possible. And uh, this creates a bigger issue for the batteries because uh, for lithium-ion batteries at least, these tend to cause small ruptures in the chemical network that it's, that's mm. there inside. And also discharging the battery for at least for electric vehicles you would discharge the battery and then it would remain at a low level for quite a long time and for lithium ion batteries that is dangerous because yeah. they tend to catch fire as sometimes samsung found out <laughs> so uh, in terms of uh, the rate of charging and discharging also plays a big role and that might be something that we could look at because uh, if we have 15% of uh, the electric fleet uh, of the car fleet being electric, then we do not need to use one car to charge and discharge. We could use 10 cars to charge and discharge at one-tenth the rate, which would be better for the batteries in a manner. But then again, that would require all of the car cars to be Connected. smart cars. Yeah. Hmm. Then that poses an infrastructure problem that we should be able to handle, hopefully. We never know. <laughs> so... Um... Of course, to me, this is really an interesting problem. And um, I think um, people who listen into our conversation um, also agree with that, that this is kind of a fascinating thing to work on. So um, how was the situation when you decided to take up um, this master course? Um, were you interested in this renewable energy and the future and things like that, or just more on the technical side? I was interested in the more energy side. I, I was not really interested in the very technical details because uh, energy has been my focus for a while now. And uh, I was hearing a lot about Tesla over the last couple of years and electric vehicles in, in general. And once I did my battery course, because batteries was my specialization in my bachelor's. Uh, so then I, I was just 
very curious because my master thesis was dealt with central decentralized grid so the interplay between these two was quite uh, significant and i thought electric vehicles would be the best study case for me and so i was dealing with them and trying to see how the future grid would look like and I, because i i'm quite interested in all those and while i i i understand that the approaches might not be the most optimal one since i assume none of the regulatory pressures would cause a significant change and that the centralized grid as it is now would exist in 2030 which is again not a given but uh, that was my main focus when i started the thesis to come up with the impact for the grid the impact for the electric vehicle and the possible frequency reserve that they would just provide in theory and uh, the the reason why i did so multiple i tried a monte carlo simulation as such and the, the idea was to see from a fleet aggregator's perspective how likely it is that they would be able to promise these uh, loads and dem- uh, balancing services as such so that was my main focus when i started yes how did you organize your two years in this entech problem so because there's always you have to start in lisbon or karlsruhe and then you have to change so what did you decide to do well uh the program was quite laid out from the very beginning for me when i joined i wanted to do solar uh and i was told sweden was the best place to learn solar uh so organizing it was quite simple uh when when i joined kaite kaite was my first choice of university and when i came here and i i, to, I was told i want to do solar i told people i wanted to do solar mm-hmm. and they said upsala is your best option and everything else worked out quite easily like there was no problems with trying to arrange any this thing the only small problem was the overlap of the karlsruhe's second spring semester with uh, upsala's uh, fall semester which was like one month of overlap where i had to stay here and give my exams while the classes began there but apart from that i i did not find anything uh, as a major hurdle and i liked the whole two years a lot because it gave, it, it allowed me to look at two different countries and the two different way of approaching uh, the solutions Because yeah this would have been my next question if there were differences and what is kind of the common thing if you're working as an engineer uh, so sweden likes to do things automated whereas germany likes to take things in a more fail safe manner let's say so in that manner so when i went to upsala and when we had my i had projects with the local district heating community this thing and uh, 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 another energy distributor uh, they they were looking at decentralized quite uh, in quite in quite depth and that was and i assumed since that was my first foray into the de- decentralized uh, grids in a commercial in, in a look at from a company's perspective i assumed that would be the same when i come to germany and when, once i joined my company here there was absolutely no discussion of decentralization they 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 only discussed how the macro grid and how the central grid and how the national grids would interplay rather than anything that will happen in, on a domestic level and and those two approaches were quite different but then the way they handled it was also very different because uh, sweden uh, was uh, promoting 
stable energy resources and they were there was no discussion of trying to phase out nuclear or to increase the wind like for someone who try for a country that says they are quite green you would assume they have a lot of wind but no they use hydropower and that's why they call themselves green because well hydropower is green but then it's much more controlled uh, generation unit but as germany has massive wind farms in the north and they just put them up because they wanted to be green and now they're not sure how to incorporate this in a very secure manner to the grid so while germany wants to be safe they are going about in a reckless manner with the approach to renewable whereas upsala is doing or sweden is doing slightly better job in my opinion uh but i think germany can still work out all these kinks and i think germany from a perspective of outside of europe germany looks like it's the one that leads the charge on uh, green revolution let's say and it's important for germany to not give a bad first impression of renewables to the rest of the world and and i think they there are obstacles but i think they can get it done at some point but i would i would have liked it better if they went with sweden's approach <laughs> <laughs> um where did you do your bachelor's i did my bachelor's in india india uh, it was in south india with in chemical engineering actually it was so it was nothing related to energy as much i focused on my electives in energy but yeah that was Mm. not primary focus there did you have uh, the drive to become an engineer already in school or why what was your decision based on to take this bachelor's well so to take on a small story uh, i was i wanted to be an astronaut <laughs> from the beginning <laughs> and when that did not work out it was an aeronautical engineer and so that was my first engineering passion but uh, by the time i was 11 12 I, I had uh, read enough about uh, energy and the problems with energy, so I wanted to do energy and environmentalism mm -hmm. from the beginning. But we, there was not much scope in India, at least for energy from the beginning. So I had to take up a more mainstream energy course, and that was why I chose uh, chemical, because I hoped at some point that I would go into material research, uh, material science, Mm. Uh, and uh, do solar energy and uh, develop uh, better solar cells let's say yeah yeah because chemical is also connected to batteries so there's there are a lot of fields where you can work on the future of energy i can completely see that yes and so uh, when i was completing my bachelor's degree i i was looking for a energy specific course and i started off by looking at kth stockholm and i saw a course there about renewable energy which brought me to the main page of inno energy and that's where i found entech and entech looked like a more broader course and something that i thought would be a better introduction to energy rather than renewable energy because we have these this idea that renewable energy is all good and all great and that there is nothing wrong with them but there is a couple of things wrong with them and we need to fix that so i'm i'm glad i took entech that's what we call the course mm be cool uh, so that's how i ended up at entech and that was my main motivation of taking entech over other renewable energy courses as such 
Yeah, uh, probably um, sitting in India and thinking about where to go, uh, you also had a look up, uh, on possibilities in the States, or? No, not really, because I have a set of principles and I did not think Euro US uh, fell in that category. I, I'm a more socialist guy. <laughs> So uh, I did not. I never looked at the uh, U.S. as an option, and I only applied for Europe, mm. uh, and I only applied for Germany. Actually, oh, I uh, actually applied for the Nordics as well. So Finland and uh, Sweden, but these were the three countries I applied to, and that was my main area of focus when I was applying. Even though all of my friends ended up in U.S. and I came here alone, <laughs> which was kind of sad, but. I do not regret that at all. Hmm. Yeah, then you have a kind of a direct compare. So, so you can kind of compare how you made feel welcome, so to say, or if you felt well-equipped um, fitting into the program here. Because these are kind of two things. So one thing is, are you well-prepared with your bachelor's in order to continue here with the master's on a scientific level? And do you feel like living here is really a good thing for you or it's just enduring two years in order to then as fast as possible go back? No, uh, <laughs> I, I don't intend to go back anytime soon. Uh, but uh, coming here, even on a scientific level, I would say I was underprepared because the education system in India is not really catered to help increase someone's knowledge rather than help enhance the institution's reputation as someone who can give out a lot more degrees as such. So it, it was a shock for me when I came here and I heard that people drop out quite easily because it's quite difficult and quite taxing. And there were courses I took where professors started off by saying that, look at the person on your left, look at the person on your right, one of you is not going to finish the course. Uh, and so in terms of scientific, uh, this thing, it, requ it required me to push myself. But in terms of... Uh, The other, the cultural background of the course, that was a very, very comfortable process because thankfully my course was in English, so I did not struggle with German. Uh, and the people were also quite diverse background. There were more Germans than anyone else, but they were quite open. And they, I think the course pulls and attracts people who want to be in an atmosphere where they want to interact with different backgrounds. And the, our first conversations, even our present conversations, we always discuss problems back home and the, how Europe has dealt with it and the problems in Europe and how uh, countries back home have dealt with some of them and haven't even experienced them yet. And all these conversations are interesting because they bring out different aspects and you, it just improves your knowledge base because I would not get this kind of a feedback from if I was surrounded by 10 Indians, let's say. So in terms of the culture and in terms of ease, of course, I was, I, I was, it was a breeze for me. Whereas the other way, in the academic sense, it was quite taxing, but I enjoyed it more because I felt that that's how it should be. Uh, if you're not pushing yourself, you're not learning, then that was... That's hmm. also kind of, you know, in, in general... Uh, for, uh, just speaking about mathematicians, even if I have also some experience with mechanical engineers in the mathematics um, education, um, we ve very often we have this big problem coming from school and entering university that they have to see how to organize themselves in pushing themselves to learn. Mm -hmm. And also that kind of the topics get a little bit more abstract. 
So especially in mathematics at school, it's very often that you have like you learn something new and then you have three weeks to get used to it and become comfortable with it. And here we have like two times each week you learn something new and you have to immediately get used to master it. Master it. Yeah, master it. And then, of course, after the whole term, you still have a little bit of time to then have a look what was the story of the year and how um, all the parts fit together and then to write the exam and, you know, to go to the next level. And this, this first step is kind of very complicated, but nevertheless, the real thing where things are really starting in the development also of the personality and where you really have the feeling you gain um, the control back over your study course is during the master's. Yeah, because then you decide, that's really interesting to me. And since it's interesting, I'm pushing myself to really learn as much as possible at the place I'm at. And so that's um, because then you also have like basic knowledge. You also have basic knowledge about yourself. And so you see a little bit of the field more broader than when you start. And then you have to decide and take kind of the control back. Of course, you know, in certain... <laughs> There's also still control from the university, but uh, it's much more. Uh, there is much more possibility for you to make decisions. Yeah, uh, I mean, like especially in my course, uh, because the, the university culture of Sweden and Germany differs significantly. And I'm, I've been told like Germany is like an extreme of the German system where you are left on your own to study. Uh, they they do not have an organization around the studies where they tell you. How, what to expect and how to do stuff. It's just, this is what you learn and this is what the exam is going to be. Everything in the middle is your mm. responsibility. And so I had to organize, I, have to, I had to learn that uh, independence and organization skill. Whereas when I went to Sweden, uh, it was a lot more organized and I did not have to worry about myself more and I could focus on the subject as such. And both are... They're both different approaches to education, uh, basically. But I, I liked that I, I got to experience both sides of it because either one of them would have been incomplete the way I see it. So well, that was nice. And like you said, yes, the master's is when you have some basic knowledge. Like like I said, I did not have a choice when I wanted to do my bachelor's. There was no uh, uh, way of going for energy. So I had to take up, some, I had to compromise on it. Mm. And I just took up chemical engineering because that was what I was the worst at. Uh, so then once I was finishing, I knew, okay, now is the time that I need to decide and take up what I want. And it worked out. Yes. So what uh, will be the next steps for you? Um, well, I've already, uh, I, I have an offer. I'm joining a, a market analysis company. Uh, so now that I've done engineering, I want to do a little more of finance. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'll be joining an energy market comp uh, analysis company and I'll be working on a dispatch model. The Is this here in Germany? Yeah, it's in Karlsruhe actually. In Karlsruhe, okay. uh, it's called ICIS. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I'll be working on a dispatch model and I'll be working on trying to predict again up to 2030 how the national grids will play out and what forces to foresee and how the regulations that are being discussed. What So it will be a lot of scenario building and running uh, the model, the dispatch model on these cases and finding out what fuels will dominate, what prices will dominate and what kind of... Uh, 
security that we will gain out of all these different works so that's my next plan so i i'm i seem to be going more and more macro so i started with a product of batteries and then i went to a, a simulation and now i've gone to uh policies let's say so that's my next plan and i hope i can get a good enough uh view of all these manners before i find another spot to go deep into hmm thank you for taking the time to having this interesting conversation thank you for having me